On this week's episode of The Blue Gab, we take a deep dive into climate policy with Tim Cronin, the policy advisor for Climate Exchange. Welcome back to The Blue Gab. I'm Amelia Ickes, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Sully. Sully, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Hi, Amelia. Thanks for having me. Um, so... My name is uh, Suleiman. I'm a uh, recent graduate of Northeastern University. I studied political science and uh, business administration, concentrating in finance uh, during my five years at Northeastern. And I am, uh, I've been with the Blue Lab now since January. And this is a special time because I'm now in my last week. Um, I'll be joining uh, Meg Wheeler's campaign uh, for state senates uh, fully as communications director after this. Awesome. Congratulations on that. And thank you for coming on the Blue Gab today. Sully and I are joined today by Tim Cronin, who is the Policy Advisor for Climate Exchange and the Partnership Manager for Climate Action Business Association. Thank you so much for coming on the Blue Gab today, Tim. Um, first, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got into the work that you're doing now? Yeah, so thank you both for having me here. Um, Actually, uh, Scott Ferson used to be my professor, so uh, definitely a lot of connections to both the Blue Lab and Liberty Square Group in general. Um, yeah, so I, I grew up in Weymouth, lived in Massachusetts for most of my life. Uh, actually got started getting involved with advocacy when I was in high school, uh, doing a lot of work with the school committee. Um, so, some of it successful, some otherwise. Um, and, and that was my first introduction to the idea of, of doing advocacy uh, on kind of policy or anything else along those lines, uh, went to Stonehill College, uh, started working on campaigns, but also on issues, uh, worked a lot on a recycling campaign we did there, starting getting involved in my local community with the Weymouth Compressor Station, uh, which has been a kind of persistent issue that a lot of great people have been fighting for a while, and kind of fell into climate advocacy on some level after, uh, after college, uh, started interning at a place called uh, the Climate Action Business Association, uh, which actually then merged with the organization I work with now called Climate Exchange. And so what we do is we work on uh, state-level climate policy in Massachusetts and beyond. Uh, and a lot of what I do is both working with businesses on trying to get their voices included within kind of pro-climate policy, but also trying to just you know pass legislation in Massachusetts and in other states for that matter um, that you know deals with the climate crisis in a very substantial way. So... Definitely had kind of a weird way of, of getting here. Uh, actually, after graduating college, this was my first job and I've been here ever since. Um, but it's been a great place to learn and evolve and, and get to know more about you know, how to pass legislation, how to, how to create real political power. So. And so uh, could you tell us a bit more about your role with Climate Exchange? Yeah, so, uh, so I, I wear kind of two hats. They're interchangeable at different times. So I'm the policy and partnerships manager for one of our sub-projects, which is the Climate Action Business Association, which like I mentioned, we work with businesses on trying to engage them on, you know, supporting climate bills for the legislature. The other half of my work, which sometimes becomes more than half at times, is uh, working as the policy advisor for Massachusetts, where I help co-facilitate our, our carbon pricing coalition in the state, along with some other great environmental and community partners. Uh, and to that end, what we've been doing is really trying to pass legislation that uh, puts forward an equitable price on carbon uh, in addition to other solutions uh, in order to reduce our emissions, especially in transportation and heating. Now, I think a misnomer is that Massachusetts is you know, number one when it comes to trying to deal with the climate crisis, and that's definitely not the case. 
Uh, we faced plenty of challenges within the, the state legislature uh, and with the governor in trying to get a lot of things through in order to kind of meet the needs of this time. So on a, on a day-to-day, my work uh, focuses a lot with communicating with legislators, but a surprising amount of time goes into trying to talk to members of the advocacy community. Uh, I think a lot of maybe a misnomer from folks who aren't involved with public policy advocacy is you're not really saying that so much of the time goes into coalition building, you know, building trust, building consensus before you even start to message a policy or write a bill or lobby for it for that matter before the legislature. So a lot of my time goes into you know, the partnership side of, of policy partnerships. Um, you mentioned earlier about carbon pricing. Can you talk like a little bit more on that and like why it's important and why people should care about it? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think the scope of the issue of the climate crisis of climate change is, is broad and there's lots of solutions to it. But one of the solutions that's definitely at the core as far as scientists or you know, climate policymakers have uh, really conceived of it is, is the idea of carbon pricing. What it comes down to is making sure that polluters pay for the pollution that they're you know, bringing and putting into the air. Uh, right now, whether that's from cars or from electricity or from from heating in general, uh, a lot of big companies, including ExxonMobil, all the way down, they they are not incorporating within the price of fuel, especially fossil fuels, uh, the true cost to society of burning that. The cost in terms of climate impacts, like uh, you know, sea level rise, or more days of extreme heat, or more crazy storms like we've been having here in Massachusetts these past few weeks. And so what carbon pricing does is it incorporates that by, by leveling a fee uh, on all incoming imported sources of fuel. Uh, and then there's actually some really creative ways that you can make that carbon price you know, less regressive uh, and actually quite progressive. So one of the proposals that we've been working on is trying to take the money that you would get from that fee, uh, which would trickle up the supply chain and lead to higher prices, and give it back to consumers and businesses. In the case of consumers, you know, give it back to the low moderate income households uh, before you give it to you know, uh, the 1% or, or higher income earners. And that way you can counteract the impact of higher prices. The other thing you can do is take some of that money and invest it in clean transportation and further reducing your carbon footprint and you know, essentially creating programs like MassSave does for electricity, but for transportation. Uh, so it's, it's definitely, it's a very interesting policy. I could talk about it forever. I know we won't talk about it forever now, but, uh, but yeah. And so you began uh, touching on this a bit before, but could you give us a bit of an overview about the state of carbon pricing policy uh, in Massachusetts and maybe also nationally a little bit? Um, anything else you can touch on uh, related to that? Yeah, so carbon pricing definitely has had its moments nationally over these past like 10, 20 years. It's a policy that I know Republicans and Democrats support, and actually it was Senator Markey, when he was in Congress, he, he introduced what was called the Waxman-Markey Bill. It was a cap-and-trade piece of legislation under Obama's first term, President Obama's first term, uh, that sought to establish a, a national carbon price. It didn't make it to the Senate uh, for a, a myriad of reasons, and for a while people really didn't talk about carbon pricing that much. But I think in the wake of 2016, uh, with President Trump's removal from the Paris Accords, and really kind of a, a vacuum of, of national uh, of policy, climate policy leadership at the national level, states really started to jump in, including Massachusetts and in trying to pass uh, legislation, including with carbon pricing and other solutions. And so that's really where we are now in Massachusetts and in other states. 
Massachusetts has introduced a carbon pricing bill in some form or another for about the last four sessions. This past session, we're actually very close to trying to get something across the finish line. And we had the most co-sponsors we've ever had. We had a supermajority of Democrats in both chambers supporting it. Uh, we had passed legislation through the Senate that established an economy-wide carbon price in January, actually, uh, in addition to some other great policies led by uh, the Senate. And we were really focusing on the House when the coronavirus pandemic hit. Uh, I mean, I think rightfully so, we need to deal with the public health crisis and the economic fallout that comes from that, in addition to trying to pass things like police reform, which I know are, are number one on a number of people's agendas. So we've been really trying to think about you know, what, what it looks like to pass a carbon price now. Um, I think it doesn't make, I think a lot of people are saying it doesn't make much sense to add more taxes or you know, increase fees on folks at this time, which I think does misinterpret the basis of what a carbon price is. And a lot of the thinking now is not this session, but going forward, how does a carbon price fit into the idea of a green recovery? Now, how can it help fund uh, green jobs or other opportunities to build back better uh, in both employment and in public health? within the state. So, you know, definitely, I think the short answer is it's definitely was, was doing very well, but was very disrupted by COVID-19 uh, and the pandemic in general. So, And just uh, following, up, following up on that, uh, could you uh, talk a bit about some of the partners also you've been working with um, locally uh, in this push in Massachusetts? So, yeah, we have um, a number of partners that we work with in the state. We work with other environmental groups like the Sierra Club, a big grassroots group like um, 350 Mass. Uh, we also do a, a lot of work with other groups, including Transportation for Mass, which is doing uh, doing a lot of work when it comes to transportation advocacy, which uh, kind of codes uh, intersects a lot with what we're we're doing here. Uh, another big group that we're trying to engage with is businesses. We work with the Alliance for Business Leadership. Uh, that actually our former sponsor is now uh, the executive or the president of. And Jesse Marmel used to be the president of as well and has been you know, a leader when it comes to progressive advocacy around uh, bills from the business community. Uh, we also worked quite closely with the Massachusetts um, Municipal Association and local leaders like that, healthcare uh, industry, and then also you know, working with labor to try to make it as kind of pro-labor as labor as possible. So really trying to get a big tent approach. Um, that seems to be the best strategy when it comes to passing legislation like this, especially something that's so big and you know, relatively transformative as a, a carbon price. So. Um, you mentioned earlier the effect that the coronavirus pandemic has had on climate exchange and the actions that you guys have, were trying to take. Can you speak a little bit more to how you guys have adapted to the current climate in like the age of COVID-19? Yeah, yeah. So I think lockdown happened rather suddenly. I think like everyone, we were thinking, you know, what do we do now? Like, it was very clear that this was going to impact the ability for us to be advocates, to communicate on these issues in the media, and also to do our research. And so we kind of put our heads together and we thought about the idea of trying to support the efforts around trying to, you know, create a green stimulus or to kind of create the, the, the groundwork for a green recovery, which is, I think, going to be a very important focus going forward, rightfully so, both this session and in the next session. You know, after we deal with you know, needing to deal with the coronavirus and the immediate impact of the recession, uh, that, that's definitely to follow from that. You know, we're going to be trying to, you know, as a society, as a state, as a nation, uh, create jobs. And one of the best ways to do that is by investing in 
in um, you know, policies that help to reduce emissions, whether it's nature-based, whether it's clean energy, or whether it's even retrofits and energy efficiency, you know, like insulating your house or getting heat pumps. These different sectors create a ton of jobs. And so climate exchange, we're really focused on trying to deploy research. We're planning on having some research in the next few months that really highlights the specific Massachusetts jobs benefits of, of these different uh, areas in terms of investing in them. Uh, so we're hoping to finish it up, deploy that, and then make that kind of a central part of the work that we're going to be doing going forward in Massachusetts. Um, and so that's been a lot, a lot in the coming, a lot, that has been a lot of work in the past few months. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having the research and having it be part of the discussion right now. The other thing too is, uh, I think in the wake of the killing of George Floyd uh, and, and the national kind of outcry that rightfully happened, uh, we're really trying to focus in on trying to you know, make our organization um, you know, more reflective of society at large, to make our organization you know, be more meaningful in our, in our policy approaches, especially when it comes to environmental justice or trying to support frontline communities or, or communities of color. Um, so a lot of our thinking in the last month or so as well has really been focused on how we can uh, uplift uh, voices other than kind of white voices that you know, do permeate the climate and environmental community quite a lot. Um, so we've been trying to you know, focus on providing new opportunities and, and creating new avenues for um, exploring, I think, what has been you know, a very important issue in both the climate movement, but also nationally within our organization. We have a very robust um, kind of blogging uh, aspect. We have a lot of articles we put out of newsletters in multiple states. And so a lot of our folks have been trying to be allies in this moment. A lot of issues of systemic racism have come to the public eye. Um, and I know one of those that maybe not a lot of people know as much about is environmental racism. And as you mentioned, environmental justice. So if you could speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, yeah, even, even kind of putting aside which is still important, the fact that the environmental movement, the climate movement is very white um, and has not always been welcoming or uplifting of uh, people of color within this movement or even focusing in on specific impacts of communities of color, even putting that aside. The fact of the matter is, is that communities of color uh, are oftentimes the same frontline communities that we're trying to protect uh, in the climate movement or that, are, that folks are trying to protect within the climate movement. Uh, too often, I think, citing of fossil fuels or impacts are placed disproportionately on environmental justice communities. Uh, I think one big example of the state is Chelsea. I know we had previously done some looking research into the business community in Chelsea um, and the impacts that climate change will have on that community and on a community that in general was facing so many impacts from COVID-19 to begin with. It is just incalculable. And I think what's really good now is that this movement, the climate movement, and the ecosystem in Massachusetts and elsewhere is starting to recognize that and starting to know and, and realize that we need to be very deliberate about uplifting uh, black and brown voices within this discussion um, and making sure that we put environmental justice and confronting environmental racism at the front of our work and not make it a footnote. So. Uh, it, I will say that it's definitely caused a reckoning, not only in climate exchange, but across much of this movement and a reevaluation of priorities and um, focus within the movement. So, so and just continuing on that, uh, Tim, I was wondering if you could uh, give certain examples in the Boston or Massachusetts area of environmental injustices and environmental uh, injustice causes. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. One one thing that comes to mind initially is there's a there's a sighting of the the wave compressor station in my hometown of Weymouth, which is actually a budding environmental justice community that's just over the bridge uh, in Quincy, uh, and that has been cited and is being pushed forward by Governor Baker and other folks, despite deep concerns of the impacts on on the environmental justice community that's legally designated in that area. That's one that sticks out. Uh, I think beyond that, like, like I mentioned. Uh, Chelsea or a number of other kind of gateway cities, including parts of Boston as well. I think uh, Maury Healy, Attorney General here at Healy, I think is doing a phenomenal job and I definitely want to encourage anyone listening to check out her report on the impacts uh, of, of pollution and other you know, fossil fuel investments on environmental justice communities in the state. She released a report not too long ago, I'll say it was a, a month ago or so, really highlighting you know, why these, these impacts happen, but also you know, which communities specifically they're happening to. Um, and I, like I said, I, I think this is a conversation that is rightfully happening now. It's definitely not complete. It's not complete within, you know, our, our work at climate exchange or the work of this movement in general. Um, and it's something that I think is going to be center, central to, or should be central to our discussion of the climate crisis and our solutions to the climate crisis from here on out. So. Thank you. And then, so I wanted to just follow up on that. Uh, you said uh, you were mentioning uh, a report uh, released by uh, Mara Healy's office, um, but I was wondering if uh, you could tell us a bit more about uh, what other good uh, reporting and good so good information sources are out there for uh, Massachusetts you know, climate policy. I'm aware, we're aware of uh, your weekly newsletter, obviously, but, um, you know, other uh, good sources uh, for people to stay informed about uh, what's going on in the state. Yeah, yeah, so definitely I'll give a, a plug now. Uh, if you haven't already subscribed to the Climate Exchange Roundup, which is a weekly policy newsletter that I put out uh, on the latest news and analysis and climate energy and in the environment in Massachusetts, definitely do that. Um, oftentimes, a lot of the work I do in trying to create that newsletter is really building off some of the phenomenal reporting happening elsewhere. I think a WBUR is a great example. They've invested in what's called Earthwile, which is a, uh, a reporting uh, initiative or project led by a number of reporters trying to focus in on the impacts of climate and our changing environment uh, within kind of the state and really kind of housing that within their larger reporting. So they're really great. There's also Massachusetts is really lucky to have such a strong ecosystem of groups that are either studying or researching or advocating for uh, climate action or understanding climate change locally. Yeah, a lot of that's reported in the Globe. I know Acadia Center is another great source of, of information. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of information out there. I would definitely say there's, not, there's no other newsletter like the one that uh, myself and my colleagues put together uh, of the Climate Exchange Roundup. You know, that really kind of brings it all together. So definitely highly encourage your listeners if they are interested in policy and kind of keep up to date to subscribe to that and they can find plenty of resources there. So, Yeah, definitely a newsletter worth plugging and one that we followed uh, now at a couple different internships uh, uh, reading for specifically for climate policy. So long time, long time fan. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. As a lot of uh, me and my colleagues and I, we, we at Climate Change put a lot of effort towards trying to communicate about the climate crisis. I think that's just as important as, as doing science or advocating for policy. This is definitely not 
an area of, of work that's easy to understand or easy to grapple with these the kind of size and magnitude of these changes. So I think communicating it is so important for that reason. Um, speaking to the communication aspect of it, how at Climate Exchange have you guys acted on getting people re-engaged in climate change um, and like navigating the issue of climate fatigue, like people just no longer being interested in it because they're constantly bombarded with images of climate change and losing the interest and losing the passion to make a change? Yeah, you touched on a, a really important issue. Um, and actually my colleague, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to take any credit for this because she has done such phenomenal work on it. My colleague, uh, Maria Alano, who is also our communications director at Climate Exchange, you know, she's put together a phenomenal report that brings together resources from across uh, this space about how to think about climate change, how to think about how to communicate the climate crisis, how to communicate solutions in a broader sense. You know, I think too often we think of the polar bears uh, is an example she uses, but really these impacts are human impacts. And I think centering them on the fact that people uh, in our communities are going to be impacted is, is one of the important ways of communicating just how important it is to, to deal with this crisis. I think another thing in, as well is, and you're seeing a lot of the state level uh, with another colleague of mine, Noah Dalzell, who leads our state carbon pricing network. Um, you know, there are a lot of successes happening at the state level. Uh, you know, I think it's unfortunate that the national government is not dealing with climate and, and the climate crisis. But one of the opportunities that's come from this is that states are, are leading on this. They're really leaning into this idea that they're laboratories for democracy. We're seeing states from Virginia to New Mexico to Massachusetts to, to other states that you wouldn't imagine, like Utah. Um, figuring out really innovative ways of trying to deal with emissions and, you know, uh, harness and, and deal with the solution, but also find opportunities. Also, I know like the past year, there's been a lot more um, youth involvement and youth action, especially like last year in 2019, there was like all the um, climate rallies and protests in the fall. How have you guys benefited from that momentum toward, um, the passion towards climate change also, you know, Greta Thunberg becoming the time person of the year for 2019. Like how have you guys used that momentum um, to continue your mission? I think you're very right in saying that we've benefited from this because the energy that a lot of youth activists have brought to this and the attention is, you know, this is, I obviously haven't been in this space as long as some other folks who have been, um, you know, being relatively young in this space. Um, but even in my short time here, the difference that the Sunrise Movement and other groups like Our Climate have done in organizing youth voices to be front and center in this debate has been transformative. Uh, in Massachusetts, for example, there's a number of groups, there's Fridays for the Future, there's Our Climate, there's uh, Boston uh, Climate Strike and, and Our Climate as well. They've created this like great coalition called Mike, M-Y-C-C, I think it's Massachusetts Youth Climate Coalition. Definitely check it out uh, if folks haven't already heard of it. And uh, they have been trying to be very innovative with trying to push Speaker DeLeo and other members of the legislature to be better on policy and to put youth voices at the center. And you're seeing, even in this movement in Massachusetts, uh, you know, a real yearning for having youth voices right there at the center of the conversation, which is honestly where youth voices should be. Uh, because in some sense, you know, us and the, the generations after us are going to be the ones who are dealing with the bulk of this crisis, but we're not the ones who are at the table making these decisions. So um, it's honestly, it's been very transformative. I think eye-opening for a number of people who have been in this space for a, a long time. How have you guys been making sure to include everyone in the conversation and not just um, youth voices, even though they should be at the forefront of this movement? 
climate change and the issue of, of climate is such a big issue. Scientists have been telling this, us this for a while. It, and it really requires a transformative policy of the scale that has been talked about you know, from the Green New Deal. And there's no way you can achieve society-wide transformative policy without engaging everyone. And I think youth voices are a critical part of that discussion. I think so are communities of color and other frontline communities as well. Um, and similar to, I think, you know, everyone on, on all sides of the aisle. I think the misconception sometimes is that the bold climate policy or general climate policy is only wanted by those on the left or by the Democratic Party. And there's honestly, there's a very interesting bipartisan, you know, approach from groups like the Citizens Climate Lobby and others to try to bring in um, Republican voices or more conservative voices uh, into this conversation as well. I'll definitely say that there's a lot of focus on trying to have a big tent approach um, by some organizations. I think other organizations are really focused on trying to organize youth as well. I think regardless, there are so many organizations in this space that it really creates a rich ecosystem where I think most groups are organized in some way or another. I, I mean, there's Veterans for Climate, uh, there's a Veterans for Climate group, I can't think of the name right now. There's so many youth climate groups, there's even like Elders Climate Action in Massachusetts. There's, there's so many different groups that are organizing around climate. And there's other groups like Climate Exchange that tries to focus on policy and bring these groups together. So, I mean, regardless of you know, who, who is listening to this, I think, uh, I think there's, always, there's a place for everyone in this movement and an obligation, morally or otherwise, for everyone in this movement. How can people listening to the podcast get involved with Climate Exchange and uh, Climate Action Business Association? So, so the best way to get involved is go to climateexchange.org. That's climate-exchange.org. We can sign up for our newsletters, check out some of our original content and research, and also look at some of our communications guides, including the ones we talked about here today. Uh, look, the climate crisis is a, a massive crisis. It's something that I think touches everyone, including every listener on this in some way or another. And I think everyone has a part in trying to solve it. And I think too often it's seen as such a big solution such a big issue that requires such big solutions that you know, maybe it's hard to understand how you can be part of that. Uh, but one great step is you know, join the climate exchange kind of network, uh, learn some of the, the solutions that you can push for in your local communities and, and definitely just keep climate, climate change at the top of among your issues when talking to lawmakers and public officials in general. Uh, it's an important issue that is not only something we have to deal with, but also something that when we do deal with, we can have a lot of opportunities to, to deal with some other issues within our society, whether it's creating jobs or trying to you know, create better public health outcomes or trying to deal with a environmental racism that, that we've faced or perpetuated as a society for so long. So there's so much to this issue and uh, it's easy enough to say, you know, don't get discouraged, but uh, there's so much to be optimistic about as well. So, so thank you both for having me on. Uh, final question before we finish as a nice fun question I'd like to ask everyone is uh, if you could nominate any fictional character for president, who would it be and why? Also, it should be noted that they can be a real person or an animated person or an animal or anything. It could be anything. Oh my gosh, this is a question. Yeah, there's been a lot of debate over, over the years. Most people go the West Wing route. Most people. Most people get the West Wing yard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> almost like there's I'm a sure correlation. I'm sure no one's sick there under is probably good, but. <laughs> um, there's almost a correlation between the West Wing watchers and working in politics. Who would have thought? I know. There's a lot of like West Wing. Oh, I guess so. I yeah, the Venn that. diagram of West Wing watchers and 
people who work for the Blue Lab too, it's like just a circle. It's not even a diagram. Like exactly. Well, no, I mean, I like the West Wing, but like also not really. So um, I'm trying to think of someone like fictional that I, I'm just like going through my head and thinking of like people I'm like, oh, well, that'd be a difficult presidency. The Senate is going to be hard there, but. But Sully, yeah. who would you nominate? Right now, I would definitely take Elizabeth McCourt as an international student oh. and with a person with strong foreign policy interests. As much as there's a lot to address in the U.S., I am very concerned about the state of foreign policy and the U.S. and the rest of the world as well. And I think that she would be excellent, excellent choice for president. That's a really good one. If I ever get to ask that question, I might say that. Um, if anyone, I would nominate Raj Chetty. He's actually an economist out of, I believe, Stanford at this time. He is doing phenomenal work on income inequality and trying to understand some of the, the roots of not only structural racism in our country, but also just trying to, to see and put forward like positive solutions for, for some of the biggest problems we're facing in economics and public policy. He's, he's like a rock star in the econ world right now. And you know, definitely, I, I think he'd be a great president. Well, if he's listening, I hope he is. This is your note. Oh, yeah. Run for president. You heard it here first on the Blue Gab. Well, thank you so much, Tim, again, for joining us. We really appreciated it. And if people are interested in following any of your content, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter at Tim Cronin MA. Um, and that's probably the best place to find me because I'm tweeting too much all the time. So thank you both for having me on. And uh, I appreciate the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening to the Blue Gab this week. Um, If you're interested in finding more about our podcast, you can find us at Blue Gab Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you so much for listening this week.